This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Andrew Delbanco is Director of American Studies at Columbia University, where he's been a faculty member for many years. He has been Columbia's Julian Clarence Levi Professor in the Humanities since 1995. A widely published author and lecturer, he is a major figure in America's intellectual life. Dr. Andrew Delbanco now joins me for Thinking in Public. Professor Delbanco, in your new book entitled College, What It Was and Should Be, you talk about the gain and perhaps the loss of what you call the college idea. What is that idea? Well, um, it's got a lot of dimensions, of course, uh, and and roots in uh, educational institutions in the ancient world and in Europe. Uh, But my contention is that the American college has been a distinctive institution in a number of ways. First of all, I think it's, it's based on the assumption, which is very deep in our culture, that young people... Uh, between adolescence and adulthood, two stages of life uh, of which the boundaries are always in motion, of course, um, uh, deserve an opportunity to reflect on who they are and who they hope to become, uh, on what their values are and and how they might uh, best be able to make for themselves a a life of meaning and purpose. Um, And and I think, although we we tend to take for granted this sort of interregnum of four years uh, uh, at that stage of life, that's actually a rather unusual notion when you you put it next to uh, educational ideas in in other societies. In the old world, uh, those who go to university who have historically been a, a smaller portion of the population than in our country are expected to know already um, what they're about. They go there to study a particular subject. They're already specialists. And um, the many who don't go, um, it's been determined relatively early in their lives that um, this is not for them, that they're heading into this trade or that profession. There's something to be said for that for that system. I, I suppose you might say it uh, it takes the pressure off of young people in some ways. But I think in our country, we've always wanted to believe uh, that people can define themselves, indeed redefine themselves, that they're not um, uh, doomed or, or, uh, or designated uh, by, their, by, their, by their past. They're, they're not, uh, they, they don't have to become the same, the same people their parents were. They, their opportunities shouldn't be constrained by the circumstances of their birth. And I think the institution of college in America has been very important in trying to make that ideal uh, become a reality. You describe your new book as something other than a Jeremiah, an elegy, or for that matter, a call to arms. But you clearly do want to defend the proposition, and I'm reading your own words back to you here, that the college idea still has the power to motivate young adults more than any other form of education we know. Well, right. I mean, I didn't want to join the uh, the funeral dirge. Uh, uh, there are a lot of pressures on the institution I've just haltingly tried to describe. Um, uh, economic pressures, uh, concerns, very understandable concerns on the part of people as to uh, what exactly they're going to get for their investment when they send their children to college. And as we all know, hardly need to be reminded, we have a cost problem in this country, the cost of higher education is becoming insupportable for a lot of people. 
Um, so, so the institution is under a lot of pressure, and it's rather tempting to sort of look at uh, to find some point in the past and designate it as a golden age, and say uh, it's gone forever, or maybe there are a couple of places that might uh, hold on to it. I didn't want to write that kind of book. I wanted to write a book that would try to um, distill what I think the essence of the of the institution is and should be, and just kind of put put it out there in order for us to keep those in view as we move into the future. And these institutions are inevitably going to change in all kinds of unpredictable ways. But um, I don't, you know, we don't want to lose the most precious parts of them. And um, and I have to say, uh, this doesn't sound uh, self-serving, that despite the oceans of ink or whatever the equivalent is of uh, online uh, discourse uh, spilled on the subject of college, um, <clears throat> almost all of it is in one way or another about the economic dimension of the of the question. Why does it cost so much? Um, what is the return on your investment if you go to college? Uh, if as some of our public figures are, we're worried about the future of the institution and the question of keeping it accessible to people with fewer financial means. Um, that's a bad thing for our country because we need an economically competitive population. We need an educated population, particularly in the so-called STEM field, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, as we watch the rising powers of the East, China, and India, and so on. Um, now all of these are, are perfectly good uh, and appropriate concerns, but it seems to me that there's something missing from this conversation, and I wanted to try to do something to remedy that that there are other important uh, services that the college performs for us collectively as a nation and for individuals that, that don't get talked about so much. And one of them is um, uh, the future of democratic citizenship. I mean, Mr. Jefferson believed, and, and this was uh, what motivated him to found the, the great University of Virginia, which he regarded as, as one of the proudest achievements of his life, along with writing the Declaration and serving as President of the United States. Mr. Jefferson believed that you cannot have a democracy without an educated citizenry. So uh, we, we need to keep that in mind, and we need to um, bring that aspect of the importance of higher education into sharper focus. Uh, and one yes. of the things I, I say, I don't know if I say it in quite these words in the book, is that I can't think of a, of a better rehearsal space for democracy than the college classroom. When a college classroom functions well, and what, whatever subject is under discussion in that classroom is not necessarily the central issue, when it functions well, it's a place where students uh, learn to speak with civility, to listen to one another with respect, they learn the difference between uh, an argument based on evidence and an opinion based on prejudice. And perhaps most important of all, they learn that it's possible to walk into the room with one point of view and to walk out with another, or at least with some fruitful doubt about what you believed when you walked in. And, and I would think that wherever a person is on the political spectrum in our country, in a very divided uh, politics of our country today, uh, wherever you stand on the issues, right or left or center, 
I think everybody could agree that our public discourse could use a bit more of those qualities. Well, absolutely. So, yes, and you also have the reality that just about everyone is for education, but uh, and no one's willing to speak against it. But it seems that few are willing to define what we're talking about here. And and you do define the college uh, of your concern here in, in some detail, and I think uh, exhilaratingly so. You you talk about an educational ideal, which you root in, in a, a British model, or at least an Anglo-American model, of, of a residential space in, in which you have uh, the ingredients of a, of, a, of a teacher and students in the experience of learning. And uh, th- there's something clearly thrilling about that to you. Yes. And, and you know, we have to be flexible. Uh, we have to be realistic. We have to be flexible about what we mean by residential space. Uh, very few colleges relative to the the large number that we have. We have about 4,000 institutions now that call themselves undergraduate institutions in this country. Relatively few are going to be able to be that um, uh, idyllic, tree-lined campus on a hill with uh, shady pathways and um, well-appointed dormitories where the students can uh, kick back and uh, talk about big philosophical questions um, uh, over dinner. Uh, Though I think Colleges that do fit that description, which are very distinctive American inventions, that is, the liberal arts college that's not part of a big university, really doesn't exist in other countries, um, are very important institutions, and we should value them, and we should do whatever we can to preserve them. But for for the rest of the institutions, and for the many, the, the great majority of students who can't go to such an institution, we still want to keep in mind that at the heart of the college idea is another distinctively American notion, and that is that students have a lot to learn from each other as well as from their uh, teachers. That's kind of a peculiar idea if you run that by a lot of people in the what used to be called the old world, which has a much more hierarchical notion, I think, of the transmission of knowledge from generation to generation. That doesn't mean that, that that's not an important part of, of learning, but there's, there's something what, that I call in the book lateral learning. That's also important. And that's why I think um, the value of diversity, which has become a controversial word in our time and which has a rather narrow meaning for a lot of people, uh, the, that is that if you're going to put students together, it, it's logical to uh, assume that they're going to learn more from one another if they're not all the same, if there are different perspectives, different experiences represented in the classroom and in other settings in the college. And I actually make the argument in the book that you can, you can see that ideal uh, of lateral learning uh, all the way back uh, in the gathered uh, churches of, of colonial New England from which the earliest American colleges emerged, where the, the criterion for church membership was, to quote one of my uh, favorite Puritan ministers, the aptness to edify another. In other words, what what gives you claim on a on a on a place in our community? What gives you a, a claim on on a place in the community is is your ability to make it a stronger community, to strengthen and support uh, your your fellows, uh, your neighbors, and and that's a version of the question that every admissions officer and every selective college in our country theoretically still asks, right? They look at the application and they say, okay, what is this student going to bring to the class? How will the class be uh, poorer without the presence of the student, and how will it be richer, not, we hope, exclusively in financial terms, for the yes. presence 
As much as you do valorize and point to the value of what you call lateral learning, you also clearly hold uh, to be very important the role of the teacher. And uh, and I found much of the uh, of your discussion about the teacher really very interesting. Uh, you affirm Max Weber's uh, notion that one could be a preeminent scholar and at the same time an abominably poor teacher. And, and then you go on with Ralph Waldo Emerson uh, making the suggestion, and I'm going to quote, that a college professor should be elected by setting all the candidates loose on a miscellaneous gang of young men taken at large from the street. He who could get the ear of those youths after a certain number of hours should be the professor, end quote. I, I think just about every student who's been in a, has had a bad classroom experience resonates with that. You know, this is this is complicated stuff. I mean, um, for various historical reasons, the the research mission of the American university and the teaching mission have become intertwined uh, and closely interconnected. And although uh, most of our colleges are not inside research universities, uh, virtually everybody who teaches in a college, who earns the necessary credential to teach in a college, namely a Ph.D. degree, um, has, is a product of a research university. So um, my point, which is hardly unique to me, is that um, there's, there's something weird going on here where we, we evaluate uh, prospective college teachers on the basis of the quality of their research, uh, but we do very little to test them or prepare them uh, to be teachers of, of young people. And, um, you know, there's some people who are very good at both. But when that happens, it's almost accidental. It, it's, it's not, I mean, you, this is a matter, as most matters are to my mind, where one doesn't want to go to one extreme or the other. There, there's good reason to, to say that we want to put in front of young people scientists or literary scholars or philosophers who are tremendously excited about the field that got them interested in going into academic life in the first place. They're excited about ideas. They're looking for for new discoveries. And um, the best of them will have the excitement will be very infectious. Uh, You know, the best kind of teacher is often the one you you sort of watch uh, him or her uh, thinking through a problem. Emerson speaks about the scholar as man thinking as opposed to the bookworm. Uh, So, um, when it works well, the, the sort of marriage of research and teaching is the best possible combination. But I think that things have gotten rather out of balance, and it, and it astonishes me, frankly, that we give the Ph.D. degree and put out onto the job market um, uh, people who have had very little experience in the classroom, very little mentoring from more experienced teachers, uh, so it all boils down to the point that we, we, we need to take teaching more seriously because at the end of the day, again, wherever you stand on questions of educational reform and K-12, through you know, charter schools versus public schools, teachers' unions versus no teachers' unions, at the end of the day, everybody knows that the key relationship in the educational environment is that between the teacher and the student. So we need to do everything possible to have the best and most committed, most dedicated, and and most respected teachers we can at every level of American education. And that means teachers who understand this, uh, well, I'll just go ahead and use the word, the miracle of learning, uh, of education, and of the something very special, ineffable, and uh, and unpredictable that happens 
when all of a sudden there is one of these uh, rather luminous moments uh, for a student when, when something just absolutely sets him or her afire. In one of your chapters, you cite uh, the rector of Justin, uh, the well-known novel from the 1960s, in which the, the fictional character Frank Prescott is modeled after Indicate Peabody, who was for many years the headmaster of the Groton School. And he is cited as saying this, The older I get, and he's speaking to a younger member of the faculty, the more I recognize that the only thing a teacher has to go on is that rare spark in a boy's eye. And when you see that, you're an idiot if you worry where it comes from, whether it's an ode of Horace or an Icelandic saga or something that goes bang in a laboratory. Absolutely. And look, those of us who are parents, this is what we want for our children, isn't it? We want our children to have a a passion, something they believe in, something they want to pursue, uh, something that makes them feel good about getting up in the morning. And um, and this is what teachers want for their for their students. And and uh, it's it's going to be something different for 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 every student. I mean, I think there's a place for a certain amount of prescription in the curriculum. And I'm, I'm somewhat sympathetic to the traditional end of the spectrum that there are certain books that all students should read and certain ideas with which they should be familiar. But but at the end of the day, what's much more important is that they should find something that they get excited about, and it and it and we hope it's something more than the opportunity to make as much money as possible the day they leave college. Um, you know, you can make the argument that our country is a better place for for uh, for for the opportunity, entrepreneurial opportunities we make available, and we've had a lot of very generous people who have uh, who've given back after they've done well in life. I'm not I'm not antagonistic to uh, to creativity in the marketplace, but we also know that that's not the only value. That we can't be a a healthy society with with a commitment to one another uh, if we devalue uh, everything else. So um, a college, college is a place where that uh, it's, an, it's a place where those opportunities should be incubated and encouraged. And uh, to go back to your the way you put the question, I mean, uh, teaching is not something you can you know you can do formulaically or by by uh, you know coloring in the uh, uh, the boundaries of following the numbers. Um, teachers have to be experimental. Different kinds of teaching techniques work with different kinds of students. Teachers have to find ways to make the subject fresh for themselves and and for their students. Um, so you know, teaching is a very creative and very demanding activity, and uh, we should we should um, value it. And valuing it means that we should reward it also in measurable ways. Now, when you're thinking about uh, the university and and then more precisely the college, and you talk about this college idea, one of the things that you document in your book is that that idea was once deeply theological. And you talk about uh, how theology lost its primacy and how nature, history, and human psychology came increasingly to be viewed from a scientific rather than a religious perspective. Tell a bit of that story and, and how that changed the nature of the college and of the college idea. Well, of course, that's uh, if you follow that story inside the world of higher education, you're really only looking at a a, a small sector of what is a much larger story. Um, uh, this is not to say that there aren't uh, still in this country, of course, many people of deep religious conviction, um, but the institutionalization of religion at the center of, of uh, American life has um, uh, over over a period of centuries 
been weakened and has been displaced by a, a kind of tolerationist ideal, which I have a lot of respect for, and I think the rest of the world has a lot of envy for, given all the religious strife we see around the world, which which basically says, look, religion is a private affair, and um, uh, we don't we won't interfere with people's religious convictions. They can associate with whoever they want in their in their religious institutions, but in the public space or the public square, as it is sometimes called, uh, when we come together to to debate issues that concern us in common, uh, we leave religion out of it, except to the extent that we um, want it to be safe to express itself. Um, now, as I say, there's a lot to be said for that, but one of the consequences uh, has been that uh, all the leading, well, not all, but many of the leading American institutions of higher education were uh, arose from religious motivations as, as sort of quasi-seminaries. And even as that identity uh, changed, as late as the ni- as, as late as the late 19th century, it was uh, conventional in many American colleges that the capstone course that every student took in in his or in those days it was almost all always his senior year was a course on moral philosophy taught by the college president. Now, there's there's still some uh, sectarian institutions and some very very good institutions in this country associated with one denomination or another. Where the centrality of religion is is remains, uh, you know, in the in the bones in the marrow of the institution, but in the the leading institutions that produce the the scholars that go out and become the teachers, um, that is that is no longer the case. Now, I don't think there's any profit in speculating about turning back the clock, uh, and there are a lot of uh, good things about this change. Uh, I mean, we don't want to go back to the era, I don't think, where members of certain religious groups, like Jews and Catholics, for instance, were simply excluded from uh, the most um, desired institutions in in the United States. But there's also something that's been lost, and that is a kind of moral center um, uh, in these institutions. And I think we've, we've been struggling ever since to figure out ways to keep discussion of values of ethical principles, uh, of truth, uh, at the center of the the discussion, both curricular and extracurricular, in these institutions, and it's a it's a, it's a never ending struggle. There's no easy answer to it, um, but we want to we, we don't want to give up on it. We don't want to think of our colleges and universities as exclusively delivering you know sort of cognitive capabilities to to their students they they should remain in my view in the business of trying to help students sort themselves out as ethical creatures and figuring out what their responsibilities are to their to their fellow human beings that's a tall order one of the most interesting sections of your very interesting book to me is where you describe the the context of of the modern college or the contemporary college you describe it as a mostly post-theistic academic world, but then you go on to say there is a mysterious third force present in every classroom, and, and I had not seen it expressed this way before. You, you speak about this interval, this invisible interval between the mind of the teacher and that of the student. How, how does that right. work in the classroom? Well, this is something that has always struck me, and, I, you know, I, uh, I'm, I'm was fortunate to have a great teacher 
who um, helped me understand the importance of religion in American history and religions that are outside my own tradition, which is Jewish and to which I have a rather attenuated relation. Um, I, I invoke in the passage that you're referring to the Puritan concept of grace and the, doc, the idea of the doctrine of means, which, which was their way of expressing the, the point that the minister, who is really the ancestor of the teacher, I mean, the sermon is pretty closely related to the lecture in my mind. Um, the minister is, in, in a certain respect, uh, as we might say today, channeling God from the, point, from the Puritan point of view. God speaks through the minister. He's the, the, the minister is God's means of communicating to the laity. Um, and, but there's no telling who among the listeners in the in the gathered church on any given uh, Sabbath or Thursday evening when they used to give sermons as well in early New England, there's no telling who in that in that audience uh, is going to be uh, struck by the Spirit. Is going or something's going to pierce to the heart and and some biblical passage or some. Uh, example of uh, of a of a moral choice uh, from the Bible or from some other source is is going to uh, make a connection with that person's life, and 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 they're going to they're going to wake up. They're going to they're going to see the world differently. They're going to leave the leave the room with a different sense of their uh, relation and obligations to other human beings than they came in. I mean, if you if you got a hundred people sitting there. Um, who can say how many of them will leave completely unchanged, exactly as they came in, uh, and how many will, will, will suddenly have a different view of the world? And my point is that that's the way the classroom works. I mean, it, we would all like to reach all our students, but we all know that some of them are sleeping, some of them are daydreaming, increasingly some of them are surfing the web on the laptop or the smartphone, um, and there are things you can do to try to get their attention and, and, and make that less likely to be a problem. But at, at the end of the day, you, you can't force the transformative educational experience on anyone. You, you, you can offer it. You can put it out there, and you can do your best to make it exciting and make the stakes seem high and make it feel urgent uh, that's what good teachers do, whether whether they're teaching biochemistry or or um, or the classics. Uh, but you can't you can't coerce a student to learn. We all know that, right? Um, so to me, the the way in which uh, the Puritans talked about the experience of the transmission of grace is really quite analogous to what happens or doesn't happen in in the classroom. Now, when you survey the college idea in America today, uh, one question that came to my mind that you didn't exactly address or answer in the book is, is, is where in this perilous world for the college idea do you expect that idea to have its greatest opportunity for continued honoring and, and, and flourishing? Where do you think the college, as you describe it, is most likely to survive? Well... That's a tough one, and since I wrote the book, I've actually been been trying to educate myself about um, what a lot of people are talking about these days: the the growth of internet education and the uh, coming transformation that a lot of people expect uh, of the institutions that you and I have been talking about by the by the online uh, presence of a, of a whole new uh, 
uh, educational world. So, you know, some people's answer to the question you've just asked is would, would be that that the, the college is going to survive in what they might describe as the virtual world, that we're on the verge of finding ways to create the kind of community I've been talking about, to foster lateral learning through uh, online discussion groups uh, in ways that old fogies like me can barely imagine, Um, and that uh, there's an explosive uh, opportunity for expanding knowledge and and enlarging the, the reach of educational institutions through these new technologies. I would actually like to believe that they're right. I have a lot of skepticism about it, maybe just because of a failure of imagination, the kinds of things we've been talking about, the the way in which a teacher looks a student in the eye. Um, and, you know, I, I should say just parenthetically that sometimes the best teachers are the ones who make students most uncomfortable, right? Absolutely. By, Absolutely. By putting you on the spot and making you realize that you're – you're not thinking about what you're saying, and, and you're, you're, you're glib about your, your convictions. Um, so I have a lot of trouble imagining all of that getting translated into an online uh, environment. But, but that is one place where, the, where some people think the future lies and where the hope lies. You know, you in make a meantime, very yeah, – excuse me, if yeah, I could just say, yeah. uh, in terms of the online uh, uh, context, you make a very interesting observation – and you credit it to someone else. I don't have the, this page in front of me. Uh, but that is that the online learning experience can work fairly well in disciplines in which there's only one and obviously only one right answer. It, it's yeah. much more difficult in terms – so perhaps uh, uh, in, we might say in some, at some level of, of mathematics just to generalize. But, but when it comes to right. ideas, it's, it's a much more perilous place. I think so. I mean my, science, my, my scientist friends would – would and have objected to that way of formulating it on my part by saying, look, in, in real science, uh, there, rare, there rarely is one clearly right answer. But, but we all know what we, what we mean by that. I mean, if you're, if you're learning to perform certain mathematical calculations, if you're studying statistics, um, you know, you either get it or you don't get it. You know how to do it or you don't know how to do it. And I don't think it's accidental that the online pioneers are in places like uh, Carnegie Mellon University, MIT, Stanford, where there's a very heavy uh, presence of technology and science. And these are great institutions, and, the, and some of the people doing this are, are great people. Um, but I do have a lot of trouble uh, understanding how what you and I have been talking about, um, yes. the ethical development of young people, um, the the study of questions to which there are multiple answers competing with one another, I have a lot of trouble understanding how that's going to get translated to the online world. But what I wanted to say is that whatever the, the future of online education may be, uh, we we don't want to give up on the existing institutions. Absolutely. And um, and you know, it was, I think probably if your listeners choose to go out and read my book, as I hope they will, I, I would make the prediction that the, the, the chapter they'll be least satisfied by is the last one, which, where I take a stab at making a few suggestions about what might be done about some of the problems we face, such as the training of good teachers that we've been talking about. And the reason they'll, they'll find it unsatisfying is that I don't think there are any silver bullet broad gauge 
solutions to the problems we face. One of the great strengths of the American system of higher education is that it has never been a system. That is, we have all kinds of different institutions, and we don't have some central authority telling them how to behave. So to me, the inference to be drawn is that each institution has to come to terms with itself, with its own uh, cultural uh, traditions, understand its own constituency, its own mission, its own resources, and um, work out for itself how it is going to find a way to preserve the values that we've been talking about. And so at every stratum of the system, the problems are different. I mean, in the elite, so highly selective institutions where I've had both the the uh, uh, the privilege and in some ways uh, the the problem of spending much of my my life i think the problem in those institutions is they're too pleased with themselves hmm. and um they're not generally very interested in educational new educational ideas and i don't think they're doing a very good job of teaching those old uh, values like humility and uh, and doubt to their students. Now that's a big generalization. There are wonderful students in my university and wonderful faculty as well. But in any case, that's a generalization that I would stand behind. Yes. If you go um, to the other end of the spectrum, and I don't like the hierarchical implication that you know they're the best and then they're the lesser institutions. But if you go to the community colleges, which serve such a huge percentage of students in our country who are increasingly adults, returning veterans, people who've been laid off or looking to learn the skills to to get a new job, um, these are tremendously important institutions, and they are absolutely starved for resources. Their faculty are overworked. They're more and more reliant on part-time faculty. I mean, one of the things I, I, I really hope to convey in this book is that the the public um you know the caricature of the college professor as the as the tweedy lazy person who spends most of his or her time in airports um rather than in the classroom uh applies to a very very small fraction of the people who teach in our colleges most of the people who teach in our colleges are extremely devoted to their students and overworked and underpaid so we have a a resource problem, and and one of the terrible ironies is that uh, the institutions that teach the most students and the and the students who need the most support are the ones with the fewest resources. The very idea of the college is worthy of our examination, but the survival of the college idea in our contemporary setting is something that I think many Christians might underestimate as a challenge, because even as Professor Del Banco believes that the college is still the optimal context for the education of the young, I think most of us recognize there's something distinctively Christian in, in terms of our college idea that could very quickly be lost in an age of industrial education, in an age in which the very things that make a college a college can be so quickly lost in terms of making education something that might be marketable and might, by some pragmatic estimation, work, but would be, at the end of the day, far less tied to soul and heart than the college idea must always be. I wonder if I might change the, 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 the trajectory of our conversation for just a moment. Sure. And, and, and take you back to your own academic career 
and uh, and how you established and, and found an interest in certain things. At some point, that spark uh, came into the eye of Andrew Del Banco. And, and one of those has to do with the role of the Puritans in the making of the American mind. How did you come to that interest? You know, uh, that kind of question, I'm, I'm happy to wrestle with it. I have no problem with confronting it. Uh, but I, uh, that's the kind of question that I think very hard to answer because none of us I can quite say how we became the people we are. It's some kind of weird uh, combination of uh, fate and choice and, and accidental encounters with certain people and opportunities you didn't expect and so on and so forth. So in my case, I, I guess I would have to say that uh, I mentioned uh, that my heritage is Jewish. Um, you know, my parents, uh, despite the Italian-sounding last name that I carry around with me, uh, were Jews born in Germany. Um, and um, so when they were young, around the age of uh, the, the classic uh, college student, 20, 21, 22 years old, um, a gentleman named Adolf Hitler came to power uh, in Germany, and suddenly the world was turned upside down, and um, we all know what happened. The, the nation with the best universities and the most Nobel Prize-winning scientists and um, uh, the, the distinguished museums and so on and so forth uh, descended into a barbarism that even yes. poets like Dante couldn't have imagined. So uh, that's, a, that's a part of, of who I am, right? Because my parents had to flee for their lives from that, and I think that led to certain preoccupations I've had in my own uh, intellectual life, like with the problem of evil or the meaning of sin, um, uh, the tendency of human beings to do things unimaginable to one another. Um, and when I uh, encountered the writings of the uh, early uh, the American Puritans and the, the Calvinist uh, tradition, the Reformed tradition that they represent, I discovered that there was a very rich literature on this subject, and I discovered it with the help of a very great teacher who uh, convinced me that there was intellectual excitement in exploring those texts, and, as I was trying to suggest throughout our conversation, that they remain highly relevant to our experience today and that you can't really understand too much about America if you don't understand something about that religious tradition. I mean, not just in the form sure. of the New England Puritans, but uh, in all kinds of uh, variations. Well, you uh, make that point yeah. very convincingly. As you do in terms of your other work, I, I can see a, a progression in terms of your thought and, and some continuing themes uh, in your book published in 1995, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil, you really take on that, that very issue that, uh, for understandable reasons, has, has been something of, a, of an academic and personal preoccupation. But you make some interesting observations that, uh, when I first read that book, I, I can still remember. For, for one thing, you point out that, uh, that much of the language about sin and evil that belong to that theistic worldview, it, it, it's still pretty close to the American mind. Uh, for instance, you write, even for secular liberals, it should be said, the old religious metaphors are not entirely gone. They still simmer below the level of conscious expression and sometimes bubble back to the surface of ordinary speech where they can be detected if one listens closely. That, that's a very key insight, I think. 
Well, uh, <laughs> thank you, but I, I think it sort of reflects the basic uh, problem that um, even if, we, if our vocabulary for talking about evil is attenuated, uh, the, the evil itself is not attenuated. Um, there is plenty of evidence in the world that human beings have not made uh, moral progress to the same extent that we've made material and technological progress. Um, uh, you know, that's one of the great ironies of the 20th century, isn't it? I mean, the century of, of air travel yes. and the beginning of the computer age and wide-spectrum antibiotics and so on was also the same century uh, as the Holocaust and the, and the gulag and the, and the mass murders in, uh, in Mao's China. Um, so my uh, hope in that book was to, was to make the point that we, we, we still need to s seek for ways to understand these phenomena and that reducing them to merely political problems or uh, uh, some other kind of uh, rationally understandable uh, kind of problem is, is, is not adequate. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that I think you know, students in college should be thinking about. Um, uh, because they're all going to face some version of this in their lives, and if they take seriously the tradition that we've been talking about, um, they need to face these these ca capacities within themselves. I mean, the the real point of that book that you've just alluded to, The Death of Satan, was not that Americans have stopped talking about sin and evil. I was misunderstood, I think, in some quarters as saying that. But rather that they've stopped talking about it in a productive way, and that the most the most productive way to talk about it is to recognize that it's not something that's outside of ourselves. I can it's remember uh, almost exactly where I was sitting when I, I read this book, and uh, and as a Christian theologian, I, I was struck by so much of what you had to say here. But but for instance, this line out of your book, you say. But it's also true that when you discard the old words and symbols, you arrive at an unprecedented condition of inarticulate dread, end quote. I think that's one of the most haunting sentences I've read uh, in, in many a year. Well, you're, you're being very kind to me, and you're talking about something that feels a long time ago um, to me now. But uh, look, I think people need structures of meaning. They, they need, and they need, they need symbols that represent... Uh, the best of human possibilities and and uh, remind them of the worst human possibilities and we we all have a sneaking awareness that those are there, so if we have no way of talking about them with ourselves and with others, I think we're in a we're in a bad place i mean you know i, I didn't come on your program to make an, an advertisement for a film and it's, it's a film that has uh, some things wrong with it, I think. But I just saw the, the the new film about Lincoln, and you know, it's 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 remarkable. I mean, Lincoln is a figure who uh, to to whom all Americans who who've spent any kind of time at all informing themselves about the fundamental issues in the history of our country are drawn to him, right? Because Absolutely. he was, yes. he was wrestling, question. right, wrestling with. The deepest questions, you know, what do you do in the face of an obvious, patent, manifest evil, uh, and yet you have obligations to constitutional processes, and you have um, people who don't see it as for what it is. So how do you how do you make progress, and, and how do you weigh uh, the huge cost that 
came in the form of the Civil War of nearly the latest estimates, I think, are up to about three-quarters of a million young men died. Um, how do you put that in the balance with the, with the lives of the millions of enslaved people? Um, these are very difficult questions, and they were very difficult questions for people in, in, in mid-19th century America, and there's something about Abraham Lincoln's formulation of them and his great speeches that we resonate to and that we, in which we recognize truth. You know, and we also recognize the incredible struggle uh, to still to come to terms with these things. I think, by the way, to affirm your uh, your your uh, words of appreciation for the movie, uh, I thought one of the most effective things that uh, that that Tony Kushner, the screenwriter, did w- w- was to put the second inaugural address voiced in Lincoln's voice after the assassination, uh, just in yes. terms of a flashback, and that made it all the more uh, tragic. And and yet, all the more affirming. It was it was a very strange thing. Yes, and conveyed. I, I think I you mean to suggest this conveyed that it's unfinished work. It's unfinished business. So true. Yes. Um. And and you know. So, uh, I mean, these, this is an example of uh, of what I think students should be engaging with in in college. And and I do think uh, this marks me as some kind of a conservative. I suppose. I do think that students who graduate from American colleges ought to know something about American history. You, not just you contribute to that. And I know your, your <laughs> academic field uh, is, is both English and American studies, but I want to take you finally to something you said back in 1998 in your Massey lectures at Harvard. Uh, you took uh, uh, your listeners uh, and then the readers of your book uh, that was produced by that, The Real American Dream, A Meditation on Hope. You, you take them through three stages of the development of American civilization. The first was uh, that stage chiefly expressed through a Christian story, and and then through the Enlightenment, and and then into this third phase in which you say the idea of transcendence has detached itself from any coherent symbology. And and then you write this. And and the last question I want to pose to you is, is, is where you go from here. You write, this is our contemporary dilemma. We live with undiminished need, but without adequate means for attaining what William James called the feeling of elation and freedom that comes only when the outlines of the confining selfhood melt down. There we were, and there we are. And and where do we go from here? <laughs> this may be a bit of an evasion of your question. I, I, I don't have a large, a grand answer to that. I think that people try to respond to this this challenge uh, one life at a, at, at a time. Um, we uh, we we respond to it by by finding productive and meaningful ways to relate to our fellow human beings and to and to try to point out. It's again, it's not something you can force somebody to understand or or believe, but to point out through examples of other people's lives, through literary examples, through uh, religious um, principles, that the best kind of life is a life that uh, entails service to others, and that, that people feel best when they are in contact with something beyond themselves, larger than themselves. That's the, one of the fundamental uh, principles, I think, of, of all religions that, that uh, deserve our respect. And, um, you know, there are moments, I think, in our public life when uh, people feel that that something like that is coming back in, into view, um, and uh, we want to uh, encourage those moments, and we want to help young people find ways to live that uh, makes them feel like they've, uh, they've got a purpose. Professor Delbanco, thank you for joining me today for Thinking in Public and for helping us all through your writings and lectures and through this conversation to keep on thinking. 
It's been a pleasure and I greatly appreciate it. There are certain persons with whom you can have a conversation about almost anything. As I began this conversation, I pointed out that Professor Andrew Delbanco is one of those persons. And now you know for yourselves. The reality is that when you look at this, however, there is a continual set of themes that runs through his writing and his academic work. It has to do with coming to an understanding of the American mind and of the habits of mind and the context of education that make America and democracy itself possible. The kind of educational context and the kind of ideals and the formative issues of character that might be most endangered in the present hour. Andrew Del Banco's autobiography tells you why he believed those issues to be of vital importance in the 20th century. And by simple reflection, we understand they are just as important and perhaps just as vital, even essential, in the 21st century as well. The development of a Christian worldview requires an ongoing engagement with those who write from a different perspective. In a conversation with Professor Andrew Delbanco, we come into contact with someone who's thinking about things from a very different point of both social location and intellectual engagement. He's writing for one of the most elite universities and context in American academia, Columbia University, where he's not only been a faculty member for many years, but heads a major program there as well. And Columbia, of course, is in the middle of Manhattan, there in New York City, where it's a part of the ongoing development of the future of America's culture, as those who are the cultural creatives and the intellectual elites shape the country in terms of issues, not only for their own context, but for the entire nation to a considerable extent. But there's something else about Andrew Delbanco in terms of his own self-identification as a non-observant Jew that, that tells you that even as he's looking at these things, he recognizes that there is an essential conversation with those, at least of America's past, who were very much identified with Christianity, thus his ongoing engagement and interest in the Puritans, and his understanding, as is made very clear in his Massey lectures at Harvard, that to understand the American civilization is to understand that it began with a direct and inseparable reference to the Christian story. And then it went through the period of the Enlightenment, a second phase of our civilization, a very disruptive phase, and now into what he calls this, this new era in which, as he says, transcendence is now completely detached from any kind of coherent symbology. In other words, we're not certain how even to talk about these things anymore. The conversation with Professor Andrew Del Banco provides evangelical Christians with a very important and indeed necessary opportunity to think about how others think about these things, even with reference to what we believe to be our own story. And as we think about these things with someone with the skill, uh, certainly the teaching skill and the historical insight of Andrew Del Banco, we're also reminded of the fact that there have been many, many minds at work on these issues and for a very, very long time. Uh, to read Andrew DeBanco's new book on education, College, what it was, is, and should be, is to go back into a conversation that began in the ancients, where Aristotle, for instance, believed the period of time between puberty and age 21 is where you would have the greatest opportunity for a young man's intellectual development, a, a time that really does not exist before that nor afterwards in the same way. We come to understand how college in America became regulated and structured as something basically between the years of 18 and 22, understanding that that is something of an innovation in terms of exactly how that came to be defined with what he calls the college idea developing as the best and optimal context for the development of that kind of, of intellect. But not only the intellect, he makes clear also the character. Reading someone like Andrew Delbanco, by the way, has other benefits as well. 
For instance, when you start thinking about his background in literature, you need to recognize that almost every page of every one of his books is deeply infused with references to literature and the kind of reference that makes you want to continue in a conversation in a very different direction. To have a conversation with Andrew Del Banco through his books is actually to have a conversation with dozens and dozens of other persons who, as authors, have contributed to his conversation that he shares with us. You will read things, for instance, in this book entitled College, What It Was and Should Be. You'll read things that immediately make you think that's exactly right. For instance, where he cites Judith Shapiro, the former provost of Bryn Mawr, and uh, then the president of Barnard College, who says this, quote, you want the inside of your head to be an interesting place to spend the rest of your life, end quote. Well, of course we do. One of the aims of education should be that a person, young or old, but especially young, uh, lives and learns in such a way that the inside of his or her head is an interesting place to spend the rest of your life. And we have to hope that also means that that individual is thinking, that is, very self-consciously thinking, what it means to think as a mind. When we think about the development of the Christian worldview, you come to understand that it cannot happen without the kind of engagement with other ideas and with other sources, without realizing that there is an ongoing intellectual conversation of which a book like this, and indeed even a professor like Andrew Del Banco, is only a part, but a very important part. And the recognition of the value in this kind of conversation is what should help Christians to be able to develop the skills of intellectual engagement of critical thinking, critical reading, and critical learning, and of the developing art of conversation. Because there are things you can gain by reading. There are many things you can gain by listening. But the most important things that many of us gain are gained in conversation. And the best kind of conversation is often that which takes place in public. Once again, thank you to my guest, Dr. Andrew Del Banco, for thinking with me today. Before I close, I want to direct your attention to the release of my new book, The Conviction to Lead, 25 Principles for Leadership That Matters. My concern is to develop effective leaders who have more than administrative skill and management skill, who develop more than vision. Leaders need to be able to change hearts and minds, the hearts and minds of those they lead. In other words, they need to develop the conviction to lead. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.